15 minutes it is after 8 p.m. You tuned in to the Shop Stewards Corner here on Metro FM Talk. Every Monday, uh, we bring to you the latest happening in the lives of working people and what's happening in the lives of workers on the shop floor. And uh, today is slightly different. Uh, we shine a spotlight on uh, the uh, political legacy of uh, one uh, Inacio Lula da Silva as a former president of uh, Brazil. And, uh, of course, uh, I guess uh, the uh, prospects of the Workers' Party uh, in Brazil, and in particular Lula, uh, as uh, we uh, are set to uh, see the 2022 uh, elections coming up in that particular country. And uh, joining me this evening to take a look at that particular story, PhD candidate at the Northwest University and also a uh, contributor to Africa as a Country and to Jacobin. I'm joined on the line by Benjamin Fogel. Benjamin, good evening to you and welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Just a small correction at New York University. New York University, sorry about that. Uh, NYU Benjamin, um, a lot of the work that you do at uh, NYU looks at uh, the anti-corruption politics uh, in the Brazilian polity. And uh, for some of our listeners who might not be familiar, I guess, uh, with uh, the recent history, uh, recent political history of uh, Brazil, talk us through, I guess, you know, um, the the route to power for for Lula uh, initially. And of course, I guess uh, how uh, Dilma Rousseff's uh, uh, rule also came to an end which um, in effect heralded, I guess, the current administration we have there now? Oh, that's a huge question. I um, don't know. Brazil's currently ruled by uh, Jair Bolsonaro, who is an extreme right person, uh, and uh, he was elected in 2018. Served president from 2002 until 2010 and finished uh, office uh, with an uh, unheralded sort of approval rating of 83%. Uh, presiding over a historic boom in the economy, mm. as well as a period of historic reforms that saw mass uh, um, social in terms of people being lift, uh, lifted out of poverty, uh, basic services. Lula is also a former worker. He was a metal worker and went on to become focused by, the, by a variety of factors on the workers' party who was in mm. power at the time. And... Uh, to basically explain things without getting too much detail, corruption became the sort of scapegoat for the economic crisis Brazil was uh, undergoing mm-hmm. at the time, and all the problems of the country were blamed on corruption. Sure. Now, Dilma was impeached in 2016, but she was not impeached for corruption. She was impeached for uh, essentially a uh, standard accounting procedure, which is a little bit weird in terms of moving money from uh, high de- deficits, but it wasn't illegal. Uh, but it was portrayed as corruption. And then mm. Lava Jato in 20, uh, become, as is now, uh, as a political investigation, a politicized and investigation, which focused on Lula, who was convicted of corruption mm. for, for receiving a appointment as a bribe. He sure. never lived in or never had any proof of ownership. Benjamin, no. Benjamin, yeah. uh, I want us to pause there slightly and uh, we, have, we <laughs> seem to be battling with your line there for a bit, but we also need to take a quick spot break. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want you to continue on that vein. I'm in conversation with uh, Benjamin Fogel, who's a, a PhD candidate at the, uh, at, uh, the uh, New York University. And uh, we're speaking to him about, uh, yeah, uh, Brazilian politics uh, this evening in our Shop Stewards Corner. 22 minutes it is after 8 p.m. It's our Shop Stewards Corner here on Metro FM Talk. Then this evening, we shine a spotlight uh, for that uh, segment on uh, the developments uh, coming out of uh, the Latin American nation of Brazil. And uh, we uh, take a look, I guess, at uh, the um, uh, potential prospect of uh, Lula returning into power 
and uh, if indeed, of course, he is fielded as the Workers' Party presidential candidate next year. And I'm in conversation with uh, Benjamin Fogel, who is a PhD candidate at uh, the New York University and also a contributor to Africa is a Country and to uh, Jacobin. Now, uh, uh, Benjamin, I guess, you know, uh, uh, you are still painting a picture for us around, you know, all of the, um, I guess, different guises under which uh, Dilma Rousseff, uh, you know, was effectively booted out of power paving the way for a sort of a conservative um, takeover, if I can put it that way. Talk to me about that particular phase, Jaya Bolsonaro's reign, um, and I guess the implications that had um, in the context of COVID-19, the COVID-19 denialism, um, and uh, the impact that that has had on the electorate of Brazil. Okay, um, so just for some context right now, Brazil is responsible for about between 25 and 33 percent of all COVID deaths in the world per day at the moment. The number of deaths per day is fast approaching 4,000. And the outbreak of COVID there is essentially uncontrolled. And there's not really any national lockdown, any standard sort of COVID, anti-COVID strategy nationally, except to push unproven drugs like chloroquine as uh, preemptive remedies for COVID. And uh, Bolsonaro's government was essentially flirting with anti-vax positions all of last year and is mostly responsible for the degree of the outbreak there. But anyway, to return to the subject, just um, so the development specifically that happened in the last few weeks with Lula de Silva is that uh, Lula's corruption charges uh, were thrown out of court after he was uh, jailed in the, from them in 2018. Now, in 2018, when he was jailed, he was the leading candidate in the polls. So in, under Brazilian law, you cannot run for more than two consecutive terms, but you can run again after serving time out of, out of office. So he was scheduled to be the candidate uh, for the Workers' Party in 2018, and he was handily in front of Bolsonaro, who was a second-place candidate. But uh, he was then uh, put in jail before the election. The guy mm. who put him in jail was a guy called Sergio Moro, the judge who was sort of the, one of the protagonists of the Lava Jato investigation and who then went on after Bolsonaro won the election with ease, without Lula being on the scene, as uh, the justice minister for Jair Bolsonaro until they fell out. I mean, in any country where you have the leading candidate uh, removed from the race by the guy who then serves as a cabinet minister, it seems quite suspicious. So what the Supreme Court ruled a few weeks ago was, firstly, that there was two different rulings. One mm. is that the court that found Lula guilty I did not have a jurisdiction on a case which was located in another state. So it was in a, the conviction was overturned, which means that he's had his political rights restored and is eligible to run again. The second thing, which is more serious for Sergio Moro, is another Supreme Court ruling found that the judge was uh, basically biased in the case and actively worked to help prosecutors convict the person who he was judging and more or less coordinated the case. And we know this thanks to uh, leaked Telegram F messages, which were the subject of the in intercepts Vaso Jato jet leak investigation. So basically you have the records of the conversations about how he coaches them to uh, basically get a conviction of Lula. Mm. So Lula's had his political rights restored. Now, right now, Bolsonaro's government has essentially uh, waged war against social rights in Brazil. So in terms of your show is about labor. Organized mm. labor has been first in the uh, firing line of the previous government who came into power after Jilma was impeached, Michelle Temer, who effectively uh, tore up the country's labor code and basically removed most protections for, uh, for workers. And 
for the trade union movement, what they did is essentially they uh, destroyed compulsory union dues, removing the major source of funding for unions. And they made an entire system where basically you could be hired on a temporary basis to avoid uh, um, collective bargaining power. Now, Bolsonaro's first act of, after assuming power, or more or less his first act, was to close Brazil's Ministry of Labor and put it under the uh, sort of mandate of the minister of Eco- the uh, economic minister. And the economic minister is a uh, hard-right, former Chicago boy neoliberal guy called Paulo Guedes. So there's been attacks on the working class, attacks on indigenous Brazilians, attacks on the environment. I'm sure most listeners have seen pictures of the fires in the Amazon and elsewhere, mm. which have been more or less encouraged by the government. Sure. So now in the current picture, Bolsonaro is currently falling in the polls as Brazil basically has more, more than 300,000 dead from COVID and his denialism, his extreme right positions, and his basically uh, attempts to undermine any sort of public health response to COVID. Uh, have made him uh, lose some popularity, even if he still remains in a reasonably strong position, as he has the Senate, uh, Senate and Congress uh, aligned to him at the moment. So, But the polls indicate that if the election was to be held tomorrow, there's a very good chance that Lula would win. Mm. And, I mean, I guess you, you make a very interesting point there, which is, you know, a lot of this has also been not just about, you know, the um, shifting of, uh, uh, which political organization has been at the helm, but effectively a reversal of many of the gains that working people have achieved in Brazil. And many of us here in South Africa, you know, in 2012 or so, were talking about a Lula moment. Uh, I think Kosatu at the time was really sort of banding this about Zuelin Zimavavi and co. Um, and in the context, of course, of uh, the very redistributive policy that had been undertaken under the uh, presidency of Lula. Now, of course, that happened in a certain kind of macroeconomic environment. Let's work with this hypothesis for a second, Benjamin. If Lula does run for the Workers' Party, you know, uh, uh, as their presidential candidate, do we find ourselves in a macroeconomic environment with the same type of expansionary social, monetary, industrial, and all types of economic policy that were pursued in his earlier presidency? Uh, Do you think those are possible in the current moment? Uh, Well, I would say no. I mean, Brazil's in a real bad situation. Uh, deindustrialization there has been a has been an increasing phenomenon. It's been a long-term phenomenon. It wasn't exactly entirely reversed under the Petes reign. Uh, the economy contracted by some 5.6% last year, and who knows what's happening considering their vaccination program is a complete mess. Uh, so the situation is pretty grave in Brazil. The blocks of power and the fact that the military is basically more or less running most of gov- Bolsonaro's government uh, is not a good sign either. It's going to be a very difficult task for it takes over. Now, that doesn't mean social reforms aren't possible, but mm. right now uh, you're in a situation it's so dire in Brazil. Firstly, you have to have some sort of rational response to COVID. Second of all, you have to uh, preserve what's left of its constitutional democracy after attacks over since 2016 onwards. Because, I mean, part of what, you have to, what listeners should understand is that when President Jomo Rousseff, who was actually implementing sort of austerity policies at the time, mm. was removed, the government that replaced her was uh, unelected. And because it was unelected, it didn't have to worry about popularity contests. So they could pass a series of reforms that no democratically elected government would probably get away with. Mm. Now, Bolsonaro has inherited the legacy of those reforms without having had to pass most of them. And uh, even though he passed a very neoliberal um, 
pension reform. Uh, he's, but his double down is sort of a more militarized, aggressive dismantling of the state and handing over to the private sector and violence against uh, people who stand up. But uh, it's a very difficult situation. Right now, I would say the long-term macroeconomic forecasts for Brazil are pretty bad, as they are in South Africa, yeah. and particularly because of the COVID situation. Now, yeah. if you look at... So last year, Brazil did something we, did, we didn't do properly, is that under pre, uh, Congress passed, and Bolsonaro managed to take credit for it despite initially opposing, uh, more or less a basic income grant, mm. which reached 70 million Brazilians, which is more than any of the other social programs Brazil instituted before. And this wasn't a 350 rand pittance. This was about 2,000 rand a month, which mm. is basically enough for a family to survive on. Wow. And the consequences, because unemployed workers and precariously employed workers were receiving the grant, is that you had a historic period of poverty reduction by this grant. Mm. And uh, people had money in their pockets before when they didn't have, because unemployment and the, was really bad and the economy was doing badly before COVID. So now that program has been cut, but in that context, you need sort of interventions like that. It doesn't mean you can't do state interventions, sure, sure. but it does mean that to get uh, industrial policy and to improve the macroeconomic situation, a lot needs to happen. But what's happened in Brazil, which is quite interesting, is that you have a very heavily industrialized economy, which has been shifting more, mm. more back because it's originally its economy was based on commodity exports to commodity exports, in particular soy and beef. And those sectors of capital are quite firmly behind Bolsonaro right now. Mm. Last one on my end, Benjamin, before I let you go, and uh, real pleasure catching up with you this evening. And I guess it's a geopolitical question. Um, I mean, a big part of the last decade or so in our politics, especially if we think about a nation like Brazil, has been in the context of uh, this BRICS formation. And um, we've certainly seen in um, recent years a shift to the right in India, a shift to the right in Brazil. Um, and effectively, I guess, uh, depending on the vantage point you're coming from, uh, people might argue a shift towards austerity in South Africa as well. What, what does this mean about the whole promise of a counter-hegemonic block that BRICS uh, was uh, purported to be as it started? Well, I mean, remember, BRICS was created by, uh, I believe it was a Goldman, Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs. Yeah, Sachs. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so it wasn't really like a natural alliance of sorts. But what you've seen is, uh, I guess, in the case of India, South Africa, I mean, to extend South Africa, because I do believe we've had a right-wing turn in South Africa, not mm. necessarily the top of government, but in terms of social attitudes, you can see xenophobia sure, increased. Sure. But uh, what I believe is that the failure of the commodity boom and the failure to create real institutions has opened the door to right-wing reaction. And I think what you have to look at in this case is that this mostly was PR. I mean, I think Zuma refers to like there's a plot against BRICS as connected to his downfall mm. as connected to PR. But, if, but what you really see is that uh, apart from India and China to different degrees, like it kind of is a loser's club. None of the economies have been doing pretty well. It didn't, and uh, out of all of the leaders, I mean, China it stands out because of the size of its economy. I mean, Brazil under Lula was a very well-respected nation. Mm. It was a nation which people looked for for inspiration and leadership. Now under Bolsonaro, it's the international pariah. It's the guy that no one wants to invite to the party. No one mm. wants to be in the same room as them. And uh, this PR disaster which has happened in Brazil has, uh, in my opinion, uh, is, I mean, not only is it tragic, but if you look at it now, there just isn't any sort of like 
global world solidarity, global attempts to create institutions beyond PR. So we have to think about that legacy. We have to think about what it means for the working class going mm. forward. And we also have to remember that uh, because the working class is international, that um, everyone needs vaccines right now. Mm. And uh, there needs to be, and you know, if one country doesn't get vaccinated, whether it be us or Brazil, it's a threat to everyone in the world. Mm. And we have to think about this. Yeah, is the Bolivarian Revolution dead, Benjamin? Uh, actually, it's not. So put mm. it this way. Uh, well, I wouldn't say the Bolivarian Revolution in Venezuela. I would say more the pink tide in mm. Latin America. If you look at Mexico, the second largest country in Latin America, Argentina, the, I think the fourth largest economy, uh, Bolivia, and soon to be Ecuador, mm. uh, will all have left-wing governments. Chile has just passed ra- radical constitutional reform, which opens the door to serious uh, left-wing reforms in that country. And possibly next year with Brazil will electing a center-left government again, mm. you would have a new pink tide of sorts. You would have a real turn okay. against the right. Mm. I believe that uh, what you've seen is that the right and the center-right have both proved incapable of governing. They have relied on uh, essentially anti-democratic reforms and repression to stay in power. And they don't really have a project that offers people anything besides basically keeping hold of what's yours and mm. attacking people you don't like. So there's some hope. Benjamin Fogel, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me.